Well, we're continuing through the Gospel of John in the morning. Uh, we're in John chapter 2 at this time. Uh, just a reminder, the Gospel of John is divided into four parts. The prologue is the first 18 verses of chapter 1. The epilogue is the last part of chapter 21. And then in the middle, we have basically the book of signs or the book of miracles, chapters 2 through 11. And then chapters 12 through 21, we have the book of exaltation. Uh, this is how John has constructed and outlined his gospel. And there's a purpose to each part. So chapter 2 begins the book of signs. It's the part of this gospel where he really goes through and talks about seven different miracles and explains something about uh, each miracle, actually in great detail, to show that Jesus Christ is not just an ordinary man. As he said in the prologue, he's the eternal God. He's the Word of God, the Lamb of God. And we see a number of titles of God in chapter 1, just one after another after another. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Light. All of these things are written, John said in chapter 20, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. So something you might notice that's different about the Gospel of John as well, just by way of review, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke try to start really close to the beginning of Jesus' life and His conception, or even before His birth. Um, John doesn't start there. John starts much later at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So John starts in chapter 1 where Jesus begins to gather His disciples. And we believe this is after His baptism, after He's been tempted for 40 days, and now He's returning to John the Baptist and beginning to gather disciples unto Himself. That was the end of chapter 1. But regardless... We know that by the time John begins speaking of Jesus' life, his life has changed radically. It's radically different. He's 30 years old, and for his whole life he's concealed his glory. For his whole life he's lived with his mother and his family. We think his father's probably dead by now. Certainly by the time of his crucifixion, we know his father's gone. But most believe that he's probably already dead. So Jesus, up to this point, has been the head of household. He's been a carpenter. He's been caring for his family. And now that is all changing. Now he's beginning his ministry. And this picks up the first miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word. Please stand for the reading of this holy scripture preserved by the Holy Spirit for you this day. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it 
when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray once again. Almighty God, we pray that you would indeed help us. We come to you again, as we do every week, asking for your assistance. Your holy word is full of meaning and truth, and we cannot understand it apart from your spirit. So please strengthen our weak knees and lift up our drooping hands. Lord, open our blind eyes and help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So each of the miracles that John highlights, he, he highlights for more than just explaining or showing Jesus' divinity. He also shows a, a kind of a theological purpose, a message behind each miracle. Uh, we'll talk about that one as well. But this first miracle, this first sign happens at a wedding, a wedding feast. The feast, of course, as we saw in Isaiah 26, um, is, is part of, uh, of a celebration that represents God coming to His people. So it's no wonder that the first miracle Jesus performs is at a wedding feast. I have four daughters. My fourth daughter is about to be married again. We have some experience planning weddings. I know a little bit about that. If you've got daughters who have been married, you know a little bit about this as well. Uh, wedding planning is a serious business. And it was even more serious in the ancient Near East in the time of Christ. A wedding would last a whole week. Thankfully, our weddings only last one night or one day. It's stressful enough figuring out who's coming, what we're going to feed them. Is there going to be food? What will everyone wear? Who will the pastor be? What will the service look like? What will the groomsmen wear? What will the groom wear? I've advised all of my prospective sons-in-law to look like James Bond. So that's my perspective. Just dress up and look as good as you can. All of these things, all of these little pieces are important. Well, what we don't know is that in the ancient Near East, the Eastern culture is much different. And it's so helpful for us to be able to read the Scriptures not imposing our culture on the Scriptures, but trying to understand the Eastern culture. And the Eastern culture is a culture of hospitality. It's so much a culture of hospitality that soldiers in Afghanistan, if they could get under the roof, if they're fleeing from the enemy, let's say this has happened, if they could get under the roof of an Afghani, they know that that man would protect them with his own life because that's the code of hospitality in the East. Hospitality was not just a good thing. We all love to be hospitable as Christians, but it was looked at as a great duty and even an honor to be as hospitable and bounteous as you could be 
with guests in your home. So a wedding was one of those times when everyone expected the utmost in hospitality. Everything should be planned perfectly. Well, it's in this context that we see Jesus performing His first miracle. And this first miracle has a message, and we're going to talk about that. Let's go through just verse by verse and look at this particular miracle. Verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with His disciples. This is the third day since the previous event, the calling of Nathaniel. This has been a week that John, the, the Gospel writer, has highlighted for us. A week of John the Baptist getting his disciples. A week of Jesus now getting his disciples. And now we see that they have traveled to Cana in Galilee. And as a reminder, all the disciples except for Judas Iscariot were from Galilee. So he's, he's basically in his county. He's in his place. This is... These are His people. He's from Nazareth, which is about a three-hour walk from Canaan. So Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and His disciples were also invited. Um, he's among friends. He's among family. He's among familiar people. And we know that He was a carpenter. And He's worked in that community for many years, probably. But He's hidden His glory. He's hidden His glory until now. So this, this groom, the groom was responsible for all the planning. The groom had probably planned for many months, saved for many months, to invite all of these guests to his home to celebrate the wedding between him and his bride. The wedding had a glitch though. Every wedding I've ever been a part of, there's always been a glitch. Oh no, where are the, where are the flowers? Oh no, so-and-so, this will literally happen. So-and-so forgot his shoes. Like these are problems that come up in weddings. This wedding had a glitch. Oh, the other one. Oh, so-and-so can't get on the base. He lost his ID card. Every wedding has a glitch. This wedding had a problem. The wine ran out. The wine ran out. So, wine was expected is an expected part of a celebration. It was part of daily life in Palestine. It was part of daily life in the ancient Near East. Yes, sometimes the water wasn't good enough to drink and they would drink wine instead. It was healthier. It was also medicinal. We see Paul telling Timothy, don't just drink water. Drink a little wine for your stomach. But mostly when we see wine referred to in the Bible, it's either celebration a wonderful sign of blessing or warning against drunkenness, which is sinful. Much effort has gone in our kind of post-prohibition Christian culture. Much effort has gone into explaining away this first miracle, trying to help Jesus out because He doesn't know that drinking wine is sinful or making wine is sinful. The wine they drank wasn't alcoholic, people will say. Or... The wine that Jesus made was pre-fall wine. It was like Garden of Eden wine, which is an alcoholic. Well, this is all just rubbish. If alcohol is sinful and only a result of the fall, then Jesus declared that He was sinning as well because it seems that He drank wine 
frequently. In Matthew 11, he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The reality is that Jesus was just a Jew. And we don't need to read in our culture into the Scriptures. We need to understand their culture. And their culture was, there was nothing wrong with drinking wine. You just couldn't be drunk. Drunkenness is always sinful, it's always immoral in the Scriptures, but drinking wine was just part of life, especially in celebrations. And for your just edification, the Greek word for wine has a very special meaning. It means wine, alcoholic wine. That's it. Yes, it may have been diluted a little bit, but even diluted wine, if you drink too much, you're going to get drunk. Jesus made real wine. That's the bottom line. You don't need to explain it away. You don't need to be embarrassed. It's a sign of blessing. And that's part of the meaning of this that we'll talk about in a moment. So the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. This would be a huge humiliation. An absolute crushing humiliation for the groom. And for really everyone who planned this wedding. And this was a shame culture as well. The Eastern culture is much, much more of a shame culture. If you're shamed publicly, you'll probably be over it in a week or two, depending on what the thing is. In this culture, you may never get over it. So this humiliation was something that would follow the groom maybe for the rest of his life. The details were all planned by the groom. They were, it was a very expensive process as well. And for a normal working Jew in this time of Roman occupation, this time of Herod's rule, it's a hard life. And this made the plan, planning of a wedding even more significant because there's so little margin. The celebrations lasted not just a day, but a week. Often a week. So the fact that Mary's concerned, this also tells us something. She may have actually been part of planning the wedding. The servants certainly are listening to her as if she's an authority at this wedding. Regardless, she feels some responsibility to help and to fix it. So she tells Jesus, Jesus, they are out of wine. So why does she do this? Is she expecting a miracle? Jesus hasn't performed any miracles up to this point that we know of. He's concealed His glory from everyone. Certainly she remembers the angel Gabriel who came to visit her. She remembers the shepherds and the wise men telling her the wonderful stories about Christ's birth. The angels singing in the heavens. The wise men who had traveled from afar seeing His star in the east. Or in the west, excuse me. So maybe now that Jesus has left home and He's gathering disciples, maybe she is thinking, show your glory, Jesus. Yeshua, it's time. Do this thing. That could be the case. More likely, in my opinion, is that she's just turning to her eldest son. Think of Jesus as a son, as a child in your family. He's the most resourceful, most reliable, most faithful most wise son who has ever lived. Can you imagine any problem that she's ever had that Jesus was confounded by? 
He's always been able to help her. He's always been able to fix whatever the problem is in some way or to help her through the problem in some amazing way. He's proven himself absolutely to be trusted to do the right thing by decades of faithful service to his mother. She's learned to trust him. So now she turns to him, whether expecting a miracle or whether just saying, Yeshua, we need your help. It's clear, though, that she wanted him to fix this embarrassing situation. And Jesus' response is, is fairly significant. This is, you probably wondered about verses 4 and 5 and what these things mean. Jesus said to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman in the Greek, gunai, it's, it's, it's not as harsh of a word as it comes across in English. I think if I ever addressed my wife, woman, she would be a little offended. I don't recommend that for any husband. But in the Greek and in the Aramaic, it's more polite. It's, it's respectful. It's like saying madam. It's by no means rude. And Jesus uses this address for other women. Indeed, when He's hanging on the cross, He calls to Mary, woman, your son, and to John, son, or John, this is your mother. He calls her woman again. But the point remains that it's not a tender address. It's not like mom or mama. It's not, it's not an address of, of great affection. It's not like he would speak to his heavenly father, Abba. So why? Why is he calling her woman instead of mother? Or something more tender? Well, I think it has something to do with the rest of the verse where he says, what does this have to do with me? Remember, this is the beginning of his messianic ministry. Jesus had just been baptized. He's just been in the wilderness being tempted by Satan himself for 40 days. And now he's returned and some of John's disciples have begun to follow him. His life has changed. And Mary up to this point has been the focus of his care, but no longer. No longer is she the focus of his attention. Up to now, he's hidden his glory. The eternal word described in such great detail in the prologue of this gospel is now beginning to show his glory to the world. And Mary has no special status, no special way to the Father because she's the mother of Jesus. She has to come to the Father just like you and just like me through faith in Jesus Christ, even though He was her Son. She must come to her. She must come to Jesus more as Lord and Master and less and less as her earthly Son. And it's interesting too, if you look at everywhere that Jesus' brothers and His sisters and His mother are mentioned in all the Gospels, what you see is Jesus always distancing Himself from those relationships. It's no surprise. He said, unless someone hates his mother and his father and his brothers and sisters, indeed his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Why is he doing this? Because the work of his heavenly father is now preeminent. Much more important than the work of his mother. So this response is something of a gentle rebuke to his mother. 
He's telling her, you cannot dictate my business anymore. My ministry has started. And you are not allowed to do this. In a sense, you've crossed the line. I don't work for you, mom, woman. I work for my Father in heaven. And you must come to me as Savior and Lord, and the wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God. I'm the Messiah. So he's not taking orders from his mother. I do want to spend just a moment talking about the practice in some churches, or the Roman Catholic Church, of praying to Mary or praying to saints. They use this text as justification for praying to Mary. The idea being that Mary has a special in with Jesus. If you really want to get something done, pray to Mary and he'll go twist her arm like she did here. Well, first of all, there's no indication in the Scriptures that anyone in heaven can hear prayers of anyone on earth People in heaven, spirits in heaven are still finite beings. But secondly, it's idolatry. It's heresy. We pray to God and to God alone. Now certainly there are people in Roman Catholic churches who do have faith in Jesus Christ. This is true. But they don't know their doctrine. Because if they knew their doctrine, they would leave that church. Which I consider to be an apostate church. Because they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would say that it's heresy to believe that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They would say that's heresy. They call it anathema. It's the Council of Trent. It's still in effect. You can read it. So yes, there are Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, but they just don't understand their own doctrine. And if they knew that praying to Mary was idolatry, they would not be doing it. She has no special in with the Father. She was a sinful woman, although a woman of great faith. No doubt you can't read Luke chapter 1 and read her prayer and not know that she had great faith in God. But Jesus is making the exact opposite point here. Mary must come to Him like everyone else as a sinner in need of a Savior. And he must come to, she must come to her Son, Jesus, as her Lord and her Master and her God. So it is a gentle rebuke. He's telling her, woman, I'm not working for you. I'm working for my Father now. And that goes along with the next statement he makes. My hour has not yet come. Jesus ties this rejection of Mary's authority and influence over him to the statement, my hour has not yet come. Ultimately, this refers to his death on the cross. This is the culmination of his whole mission on earth. And this is a phrase that John and Jesus use again and again. In John 7.30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, as he taught in the temple... No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, the week of his passion, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Later in John 12, he says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, finally, this is the last example, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So the hour is referring to his death and the events leading up to his death. The reason he references hours is because he's on a divine timeline now. His divine ministry, his redemptive purpose on earth was coming. And Mary had no way to know that in three and a half years he would die a horrible death on a cross. So why would Jesus say this to her? Well, he's speaking generally about the entire time of his ministry, this entire timeline that was that was planned before the creation of the world by God himself. And he's telling her, you cannot dictate to me when I display my glory and how I do it. That is not your role. I'm on my father's schedule now. The road to the cross is not going to be altered by any man or any woman, no matter how close they think they are to Jesus. Peter learned that lesson in a hard way too, didn't he? Jesus will reveal His glory when it's determined that He would do so. So His mother's response is a, is a response of great faith in Jesus, not as her Son, but in Jesus as her Lord. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Some think that Mary is somehow using some passive-aggressive manipulation technique on Jesus, which I think denigrates the honor and the righteous life this woman has lived. Like somehow he's, she's saying, I hear you. Okay, talk to the hand. Hey guys, do whatever he says. This is not what Mary is doing at all. She's heard the rebuke of Christ. She's heard her, his rebuke, this gentle rebuke that it was. And as a woman of great faith and a woman who knew God, she knows that whatever Jesus says will be good. And she trusts him. So she tells the servants, do whatever he says. Not implying that he has to do anything, of course, but whatever he says would be right and good. R.C. Sproul says that this command she gives to the servants is the best advice that anyone could receive. Do whatever Jesus says. Do whatever He tells you. Regardless, she trusted Him. She trusted Him and we should trust Him as well and strive to do whatever He tells us. But here's the amazing providence of the whole thing. This was ordained in God's timeline to be the, re the revealing of His glory for the very first time. It not, wasn't because Mary had somehow pressured Him. It was because God had ordained it. It wasn't even probably because of Mary's great faith in Christ. God had ordained that He would reveal Himself in glory to five disciples and a few servants. So let's look at the miracle. Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. 
And when the master of the feast tasted the water, had now become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water. This is a real, absolute, undeniable miracle. It's confirmed not only by the servants and the disciples who saw it, but by someone who had no idea what was going on, the master of the ceremony, had no idea. The jars were filled with water to the very brim. There's nothing that could be added to these jars to somehow fake a miracle. They were filled to the very top. And somewhere between the filling and the taking to the master of the ceremony, somewhere between there, the water became wine. Think about all the effort required to make wine. You plant a vineyard. You fertilize the soil. You grow the vines. You prune the vines. Eventually, you harvest grapes. You take the grapes. You smash the grapes. At that time, you remove the seeds. You strain the juice. And then you collect it in wineskins. Wineskins were animal skins, goat or sheep. They were prepared for this very purpose. They were conditioned and then sewn up so that they were leak-proof. And then once the skins are filled with wine, you hang them up and you let the wine, you let the juice ferment, and it takes a few months. And after all of that effort, when the wine was ready, then you could serve it. Jesus skipped all that. Somewhere in verse 8, He didn't even say anything. He didn't say, let there be wine. He said nothing. He simply decided that the water would be wine, and it was. This is an undeniable miracle. The servants, the disciples knew it. He manifested His glory. He showed His divinity. And the whole purpose, of course, was that the disciples would believe in Him. And this miracle was spectacular. And it was also gracious. And it was also compassionate. Think of the groom about to be humiliated in front of all of his people, all of his friends. The whole region has got representatives there at this wedding. and His humiliation turns to exaltation in a moment. It's also special that Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to perform His first miracle. He was there in Galilee. He was there with His own people. It reminds me of how Jesus' birth was announced by God. It wasn't to the the chief priest. It wasn't to the rulers. It wasn't to Herod and the king or Caesar. It was to some despised shepherds in the fields at night. Well, Christ reveals His glory here to some despised Galileans. Because if you were from Galilee, you were despised. Especially from Nazareth. So it's wonderful to have reinforced not only is the timetable in God's hands, but also the audience of Jesus' ministry. It's all in God's hands. That's an encouragement for each of us in our lives. Whatever you think you need from God, God has a plan. It might be what you desire. It might be something different, but it's infinitely better than you can imagine. 
And that's part of the message of this miracle. We said that each of the miracles has a, a specific message. And part of the message is just life in Jesus is full of bounty and blessing. But I think the more clear message is that because six stone water jars were used for Jewish rites of purification, Jesus is making a clear statement that the old way, the old covenant, all the ceremonial law, which was meant to really to push hearts to Christ and prepare them to meet their maker, their savior, the incarnate Lord. All of these rites of purification, these cleansings, were over. The reality was there. Christ was there. He was there with them. Those things were meant to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. So this old water is replaced by new wine. And the new wine is the new life in Jesus. It's eternal life. New and abundant and free. Full of bounty and blessing. The kingdom had come. The bridegroom was with his people. And it was a time of celebration. Think now of Isaiah 25, which we read. How the salvation of Israel had come. And this was represented in Isaiah by a feast. In verse 6, this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. In Hebrew, this is let us rejoice in His Yeshua. New life in Christ was the gift of Christ to all the people who would come to Him in every nation. The rules of purification the rules of the ceremonial rules of the law were all pointing to Christ and he came and replaced it with worship in Christ of the holy god additionally just as the water became wine in an instant he's able to change any person in an instant in the blink of an eye such is his power so the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. The master tasted the wine the servants had brought to him. And he called to the bridegroom. And I think the bridegroom may have been expecting a rebuke. He knew the wine was running low. Now the master of the feast is going to tell him, we think this isn't working out. And rather than a rebuke, the master of the ceremony commends him. He says, after the people are drunk freely, their taste buds have been dulled, their appetites have filled, the expectation is then the less expensive wine is brought out. But you've saved the best wine until now. You've kept the good wine 
until now. Jesus took the old water of the Jewish law and replaced it with the new wine of abundant life in Christ. This is the significance of this first miracle. Let's conclude with verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. The disciples who saw it knew that He was the Messiah. They believed in Him. The other three Gospels use the word believe kind of infrequently. Matthew uses the word believe eight times. Mark uses the word believe 15 times. Luke, nine times. John uses the word believe 84 times. Believing in Jesus is a key to John's message. And at the end of John, you understand what believe means when it relates to faith in Christ. It means a full-bodied, all-encompassing trust, a focused devotion to Jesus Christ. It means walking in the Spirit. It means being conformed to the Spirit. It means laying down our lives, living all of our lives, for Jesus. James describes a false belief. In James, we read that you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. He's describing a belief in Jesus that's just knowledge, it's just head knowledge, it's knowing things. But no life change, no work of the Spirit. No increase in the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Rather, you see an increase in sin. James is calling for the church to understand what true belief looks like. It's not just agreeing, hell's a bad place. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus was born. He died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. That's not true belief. John MacArthur would say that the demons actually have one up on that kind of belief. Because at least the demons shudder. True belief is a new creation reality. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Where God's glory becomes preeminent in your life. The most important thing in your life. What you think about throughout your day is pleasing Jesus. He's your anchor and your hope and your trust. To truly believe in Jesus, you must have faith in Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He's my light and my strength and my song. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. This is a much more serious problem than turning water into wine. Not that any problem is too hard for God. But your hearts, your hearts, your unholy and wicked hearts produce sin, and that sin keeps you from your Father in heaven. Or should I say, the Father in heaven? I pray that nobody in the sound of my voice would have any illusions about the nature of true faith. If you're thinking, I don't know if I really do have that kind of faith. I don't know if Jesus is really the center of my life and my existence. I actually kind of live for other things and just think about Jesus on the periphery of everything. 
pray to God that you would have faith in Christ. Pray to God that you might love Jesus Christ. Pray to God that you would have true faith and repentance. That He would turn the water of your heart into the wine of new blessing. Some of you do have real faith in Christ. And this message is even good news for you because the Gospel is for Christians as well. And it's for every day. It's a great comfort to us to remember the work of Christ. That He did die. And He was raised on the third day for our justification. We should none of us ever forget the good news. We should none of us ever forget that there's no work, the work of the ceremonial law for the Jews. There's no good works that you're doing that are making you more acceptable to God today. It's faith in Jesus Christ and that is all. Certainly works will flow from that faith, but that faith is a gift from God. If you need faith, come to God. Turn to God. Turn to Jesus this day. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. He will not break a bruised reed. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your great mercy. Your, your love to send Your Savior to us. We thank You that He is God. And because He's God, and because He has divine power to change any reality, that He can subdue our sinful hearts to Himself. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would do Your work in each one of us. We love You. We want to serve You. Please bless Your people. Bless Your people, we pray. May we all see more of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ every day. In Jesus' name, Amen.